All right, good morning. We're starting a new Sunday School series today. If you got my email, you know what it is. Or if you opened my email, that's the question. You know what it is. We're going to be uh, chapter by chapter through the Westminster Confession of Faith. So moving from um, history to doctrine. So let's, uh, let's pray, and then I'll give a brief historical introduction, very brief, and then, uh, then we'll walk through chapter one. Our Father, thank you for drawing us into your house this day. We thank you that this day is the Lord's day, and that you have uh, blessed us to be able to gather together and to worship you. You who are the one true living God. Father, we pray that you would bless this class, that we would profit from it, that the teaching on your scripture would be helpful to us, and Lord, that it would even conform us to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would work through our worship service this morning, and that you would bless us richly. May our hearts be uh, filled with love and gratitude for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the Westminster Confession of Faith. This, this is, I'm, I'm just going to read the preface from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's site on history. We may return to this later or throughout the lessons, or we may conclude with a history lesson on the Westminster Confession just to give it context, but... I just want to do this really quickly so that we have uh, something of what was going on in 16, the 1640s in England. And I thought this was a good, succinct introduction. So this is from the OPC's introduction or preface to the Westminster Confession. In 1643, during a period of civil war, the English Long Parliament, under the control of Presbyterian Puritans, convened an assembly of divines, mostly Puritan ministers, including a few influential Scottish commissioners, at Westminster Abbey in London. Their task was to advise Parliament on how to bring the Church of England into greater conformity with the Church of Scotland and the Continental Reformed Churches. The Westminster Westminster Assembly produced documents on doctrine, church government, and worship that have largely defined Presbyterianism down to this day. These documents included a Confession of Faith in 1646, a larger catechism the following year, and a shorter catechism that same year, often collectively called the Westminster Standards. Parliamentary efforts to reconstitute the established Church of England along Presbyterian lines were soon thwarted by the rise to power of Cromwell, who favored independency, and the expulsion of Presbyterians from Parliament in 1648, and then the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, which quickly led to the reinstitution of episcopacy and the suppression of Puritanism. But things were different in Scotland. The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland adopted the Confession of Faith in 1647 and the Catechisms in 1648. The Scottish Parliament ratified them in 1649 and again after a time of political and religious strife in 1690. The Presbyterian character of the Church of Scotland was safeguarded when Scotland and England were united under one crown in 1707. Numerous Presbyterian bodies have been formed since then. (laughs) 
which is an understatement, both in the United Kingdom and around the world, and they have always been constituted on the basis of the Westminster Standards, although declension from them has sometimes followed. When the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America was formed in what year? Any guesses? The Presbyterian Church in the United States of America was formed in 1788. It adopted the Westminster Standards as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. However, it it revised chapters 20.4, 23.3, and 31.2 of the Confession, basically removing the civil magistrate from involvement in ecclesiastical matters. It also removed the phrase tolerating a false religion from the list of sins forbidden in answer 109 of the larger catechism and replaced depopulations in answer 142 with a depredation. The confession was amended again in 1887 when the final sentence of chapter 24.4, which forbade the marrying of close kindred of one's deceased spouse, was removed. So all those uh, rules for consanguinity were slightly revised. So that's the introduction I'm going to give you. That's way too brief. It doesn't give a lot of context, but it gives you some. That's, that's what we're looking at. This is a product of 17th century, century English Parliament as advised by Puritan and Presbyterian ministers of the time. And they did... They did quite a job. This is a a pretty thorough confession of faith, as you will see as we go through it for the next 33 weeks, (laughs) at least, all right? Um, I don't know how we get through this chapter in one week, but that's what we are going to do. All right, so look at the confession. You'll notice that we have the confession text and then we have footnotes with scripture texts, right? The confession was originally presented to Parliament without those scripture uh, proofs and the Parliament said, work them in. We need scripture proofs, which took them another year to complete that work. Uh, but that was, that was a request, as far as I have uh, been taught, from Parliament that they would do that. And so they went back and and added these. Some of the proof texts are obscure. It's difficult to know what they were thinking when they used some of these proofs. We may come across this as we go through this. But um, one one of the points in this chapter on Scripture is that Scripture stands above all the other products of man. And this confession is a product of man. Right? So it's subordinate to the scriptures. But we think it's a good summary of scriptures, but it does not replace the scriptures. It does not get set beside the scriptures. Uh, it is not as if the confession is our uh, Roman Catholic tradition set next to scripture. No, it's subordinate to scriptures and therefore may be amended according to the scriptures, as we saw the, the, Presbyterian, the American Presbyterians did. Uh, they felt that to be faithful to Scripture, they had to change sections and, to, and honestly to be faithful to their context as well. All right, so the first chapter is on Scripture. That's significant. 
first chapter is on Scripture. Why would Puritan Presbyterians start with Scripture? Go ahead. Okay, revelation must precede belief. We have to know what God has said. It's the it's it's not the only way to know about God, correct? But it's the only infallible way to know about God. It's authoritative, right? And so uh, this is this is to. To start with Scripture is to be speaking to the context of uh, Roman Catholic domination during the time and saying, you guys are wrong to start from tradition or to, or to say that the Scriptures only are the Scriptures insofar as we interpret them to people. Now, this is, the Scriptures are truth. It's the foundation of everything. It's the starting point for the the, sal- the knowledge of salvation. And so we will start with Scripture. And so let's read the first section. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation? Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people not being now ceased. Now there's a ton packed into that, right? That's a, that is a fruitcake right from the start, right? Just dense and stuffed with fruit. And so, um, but here's where we start. What is the light of nature? Tell me what it is. Not a trick question. God created the world, so his creation, right, the light of nature, that nature has a light to it, nature teaches, uh, it being God's creation, um, it gives us, it reveals God to us, okay? That's called general revelation, that's what the theologians would call it. Um, the world itself shows that God exists and that he is a God of order, as well as the very nature of man as he created uh, him. Man's conscience, which shows him right from wrong, points to an absolute source of right and wrong, right? And so all these, uh, the, the, the beauty of the earth um, testify uh, of God. His, and it says, although the light of nature, right, can do what? Leave men unexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. So there's something lacking. It's not that, it's not that general revelation is not true. It's, it's God's, it, it's truth, right? But, but the scriptures clarify and 
uh, are necessary for a true sa saving knowledge, right? And so that's what they're starting with. They're saying, look, the works of creation and providence, you learn about God, you learn about his, his being, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, and they leave you unexcusable, yet they, they don't give a knowledge of his will, especially as it speaks to salvation. Therefore, because of that, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners, right? At different times and in different ways, right? To reveal himself and to declare that his will unto the church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating the truth, more firm establishment and comfort of the church against the corruptions of flesh, Satan, the world, to commit them unto writing. Get them written down. And so... Um, <clears throat> Think about that. God made sure in his providence that there was a written down word. That's so, I mean, the gift of that is remarkable. The gift of general revelation is stunning, right? But the gift of special revelation where we get to know the very will of God is remarkable, right? We should thank God by reading that word frequently and studying it and hanging on it and most of all believing it and then they tack on this thing who makes the holy scripture to be most necessary these former ways of god's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased right um hebrews their proof text for that statement that last statement is hebrews 1 1 god who at sundry times in diverse manner spake in times past under the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. The former ways of God have changed. No longer is it the prophets, but Jesus came in the flesh right, and delivered to us the very will of God and, that and um, taught the apostles who then put that teaching into written form for us. So that's the first section. General revelation and special revelation. General being creation, special being the scripture. Um, all right, number two. And stop if you have, have thoughts, comments, or questions. Under the name of the Holy Scriptures of the Word of God, written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. And then it lists books you should be familiar with. Those are the 66 books of the Bible that we hold to. And then there's one statement under all of that, after the list. All which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. They're inspired by God. They are breathed out, that, that um, 2 Timothy 3.16. There's a Greek word, theopneustos, which is God-breathed, okay? Out of the mouth of God, they're given by the inspiration, the um, theopneustos, and therefore are to rule our faith and our lives, Right? The books, number three, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the scripture and therefore are of no authority in the church of God 
nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Okay, so the Apocrypha, if you open up a Roman Catholic Bible, it's going to have books that you're not familiar with. Okay, those are called the Apocryphal books or the Apocrypha. And these, uh, because they are not of divine inspiration, are not in the canon of Scripture. And... um, and therefore have no authority, no authority in our church. They're good historical documents. It's like it'd be on the level of picking up Josephus and reading some history of the time. You're going to get history from it. You're going to get, um, but it's not inspired. It's different. It is, um, it has not, um, it, it has no part in the canon. Okay. Fair enough. Number four, we're making good headway. We'll stop and discuss some things. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the word of God. Now that seems to be a circular statement, doesn't it? The Holy Scriptures are to be believed because they're the word of God. The word of God is to be believed because it's the word of God, is essentially what they're saying. And that's a true statement. The word of God is to be believed because it's the word of God. It is inspired. It is unlike any other book or um, written authority. It ought to be believed and obeyed, and that depends not on any testimony of man. Now, this, again, is to confront the Roman Catholic view that said the scriptures can only be, are, are only given as interpreted by the Roman magisterium, right? That's, that's where you'll get the meaning. That's where you will get it. And, and they are starting to chip away at all of those Roman Catholic doctrines and say, no, the, the, whole, the scriptures, the authority of the scriptures is not because the church has said these have authority. Because that would be to make the church higher than the scriptures. That would be to make man higher than the scriptures, right? And they just say, no, the, the, the authority of the Holy Scriptures derives from the fact that God wrote it. It's the word of God. It's inspired. It's um, breathed out by him. And so any confession, any statements made must submit itself to the scriptures because it's the authority. Yes? Yes. Thus saith the Lord. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Uh, the canon we have is because the church um, recognized what God had 
written. It's not that the church designated those books that constituted the Bible. They recognized them. And uh, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. It puts things in the right order. Number five, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church. Now, this is a really interesting section. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof builds up. Our arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Okay, so what are they saying? They're talking about evidence for why the, the for Evidences that would convince someone that the Word of God is the Word of God, okay? And they're, they're, they start by, by saying, look, the testimony of the church should move somebody to esteem this, the, the Word of God um, because of the heavenliness of the matter, right? The glories that are written in this book, the truth that spills off of every page, the efficacy of, this, of the doctrine, right, that, that it truly does teach, it truly does give an ethic, it truly, um, it truly teaches us how to live. The majesty of the style, think of the beauty of the words of Scripture, think of the beauty of the words of the prophets, the Psalms, right, the, the, just, it's glorious. Think of the beauty of the, the description of God's creation. Think of the beauty of Jesus, having having the, the life of Jesus written down so that we might know the actions that he took when he uh, walked on the earth. Oh, you're just stretching. Hang on. Um, the consent of all the parts, the fact that there are not con- contradictions. No one has ever proven that there's contradictions in the Bible. Right? No one has ever proven that. They've, they've made statements and been responded to. Right? And so just, everything works together. And the, um, the scope of the whole, right, just the, the whole grandeur of it is the salvation of man and the glory of God. The full discovery it makes of the, the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof. All those things are glorious. All those testimonies of Scripture as we would, you know, uh, compare it to other books that give us information. This one far surpasses them in its glory. And on that basis, you should believe that it's the word of God. But you won't. You won't ever believe it because of those things. Someone who believes that this is the word of God because it's beautiful is going to be stumbled when they go read Shakespeare's sonnets. Right? Because they're beautiful too. And so they just might be induced to say that those are inspired in the word of God. But that is not enough. That is not enough. There, something else needs to come along. And that is the inward work of the Holy Spirit. 
It's the only thing that will convince you that the Word of God is the Word of God, is the Holy Spirit at work in you, opening your eyes to the truth of that book, opening your hearts. Um, much more we could say about that. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.10 is a proof text, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Right? Spirit of God is the only way that you will know, that, the, that be convinced and submit yourself ultimately to the Word of God, is if the Spirit is with you. You were going to say something. Sure. But you can look at a mountain and then you can realize how many different gods that are and that the mission of 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 the um, it is our rule for life and faith. Right, and that's, I mean, the preaching of the word, the, the vocation of the pastor is to minister and declare the word of God. It is not to make decrees that somehow um, supplant the word of God or, or are added to the word of God or take uh, an authority that's equivalent to the word of God. No, it's to take what has been deposited to us and say, the word of God. And, and unfold it, right, and teach it. Right. Uh, yes. I don't think, no, I don't think they try to be exhaustive, they, they, although it is exhausting at points. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they, we could go to it. We could amplify them with a lot more scriptures. They just wanted, I mean, just think of working for years on a document and they send it back and say, okay, we want you to work some more. Committee work, right? Think of any committee you've ever been on. And then it comes back to you and you basically have to do, you're fatigued and you have to go back at it again. So, uh, Yes. And one of the reasons was the time sequence was that you screwed, you took it depending upon which person 
Yeah. Oh, sure. Yes, yes. Well, I've had that experience in my life. I, I started reading the scriptures before I was a believer and then was converted and the scriptures changed. Well, no, I had changed. The scriptures had stayed the same. Right? And so, I, I mean, at, when I first took up the Bible, I lorded myself over the word of God. I just tore it apart. I did not like this, and I did not like that, and I was not going to listen to this, and anybody who did was a fool. And then I was converted through somebody sharing the Word of God with me and bringing me to conviction for my sins, and then I go back to the Word, and, my, and, and I'm humbled. That's the work the Holy Spirit did, was humbling me. And then when I went to the Word, it was like, oh, okay, this is not a matter of negotiation anymore. This is me coming to terms with the revealed will of God and will I believe it or will I not? And I was changed and I could read now with some understanding that I lacked just days before. It's wild, but that is, that's what this section is saying. It's very, very true. And I mean, some in the church may labor their whole lives and not have that inward work of the Holy Spirit. Right? And never have read the scriptures with that inspired reading. And, um, and so we pray that the Holy Spirit works with his word, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Section 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, and by expressly set down, it's like it says this, it means this, it's very clear, do it. Okay? There's no, no confusion about it. Or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Now, notice the qualifications, good and necessary consequence. You may deduce truth from it. Now, what's an example of that? Sin. How does that relate to, to what I asked? I'm, I'm just trying to... Un- well, what's an, what's an example of a good and necessary consequence of f- teaching we can derive from Scripture by good and necessary consequence? I was looking at a consequence of 
Okay. Okay. Uh, I, 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 my brain's not working. I'm not tracking with you, but we'll, we'll come back to it. Okay. Okay, we're not getting, we're not answering my question, and which may mean that it's not a good question. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a necessary consequence of the teaching of Scripture that you have to teach the Trinity. Right? The Trinity, Trin, word Trinity doesn't show up, but it's so clear. I and the Father are one. I'll send the Holy Spirit and he will teach you all truth. Right? And attributes of personhood are, for each one of the three, are listed out. And so that is a good and necessary consequence. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments tell you what to do, but they're a whole world of commands. The command not to commit adultery. It's not just about uh, betraying a husband or wife. It's about sexual purity. It's about, you know, it's about killing lusts. It's about uh, prohibitions uh, against homosexuality. I mean, it's, it's all wrapped up in that one, and it's a good and necessary consequence. Um, you must pull that out of there. And so... Um, <laughs> It, but it has to be a good and necessary consequence. It can't be a bad and unnecessary consequence of the scriptures. But that happens a lot, right? Somebody will take one verse that says one obscure thing, and they'll say that that verse, like the, what was that, that book that Oprah loved, The Prayer of Jabez or something? Like that one verse becomes a filter through which everything in the Bible is defined, and, and that is, that's wrong. There's no reason to take that verse, pull it out of context, and then make the rest of Scripture submit to it. That was a bad and unnecessary consequence, right? That should not have been done. And so, you know, that's what I would say on that. We've got to keep going. So they may be... Um, Whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary of his own glory, man, salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. This is a closed canon. Uh, grandma can't come along with a revelation and an interpretation of that revelation by Cousin Johnny and add it to Scripture. The canon is closed. There is no more special revelation in that sense. God still speaks by his providential means. God still speaks 
and um, moves and reveals himself in providential ways in our lives. But as far as the scripture is concerned, don't you dare add to it. And traditions don't make the cut either. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of church common to human actions. Sorry. My pages are out of order now. Oh, man. And societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Now, what's that talking about, right? It's saying that uh, you got to have the inward illumination of spirit for things about saving understanding as they're revealed in the word, and that there are some circumstances concerning worship, government, common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. Now, what's an example of that? There is no command in Scripture that we should use Robert's rules of order, which is I'm thankful for because that means we don't have to use it. But we use it because it, it brings order to our church government. Right? We use Robert's rules of order. And that's Christian prudence. Um, what day are we supposed to worship on? Sunday. The Lord's Day. The first day. Right? That is a clear command of Scripture. Uh, we're to do that. What time in the morning are we to get together? You sure? Well, we have examples of, of people meeting at, uh, Paul was teaching at midnight, right? We have examples of people meeting early in the morning to go to prayer. And so we, we have to use Christian wisdom and know our people in context to make that decision, right? So the Word of God speaks to worship on Sunday, does not tell you what time to get together on worship, although that's a necessary thing that we have to put into place. So that's a, a simple example of that. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. What doctrine is this? What's the word? The perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity. The, um, the, the clarity and perspicuity of Scripture, right? So, we can pick up the Bible and whether you're smart or dumb, educated or uneducated, you will be able to find Jesus and what he is and what he's done in the reading of that word. You don't need anybody's help. You don't need the church's help, right? 
Roman Catholic Church said, you can't understand everything. We're going to tell you what it, what it means. And that's what the Word of God is when we tell you. This is Tyndale, right? I'm going to make sure that the, the plowboy knows more Scripture than, than the Pope. And so this is about the clarity of the Scriptures and that they're clear as far as uh, coming to a sufficient understanding of salvation, but it's not all easy. It's not all easy. Some difficult things in there, right? There's some chapters of Scripture where I say, whoa. Um, There's some books of the Bible where I say, whoa, I, I don't want to preach this because I can't wrap my head around it. And when that happens, jumping down to nine, where do we go to figure out the hard things in Scripture? The Scripture. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, (laughs) it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. The proof text, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time, but by the will of man. Not in the old time, by the will of man, but holy men spoke of God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this time will return and build a tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. And that's an obscure reference. But but the, if, if there's something hard, we try to go to other scriptures that speak to that and make them uh, help us interpret the harder section. That's right. Yeah, we don't, we don't go, I mean, we, I read commentaries when I come across a hard passage. And you know what those commentaries do? They point me to other scriptures that make the scripture clear, right? So they're using this analogy of faith. They're using that to help interpret this one verse. Right? So, um, on the other hand, we could go to um, read some Origen or, you know, name some other early church father and say, well, here's what he said and that's what it means. Now, that's not how we interpret the hard passages. We don't go to the fathers. They may be helpful, right? And they may use the analogy of faith, but they may just be pulling stuff out of their ears, Huh. Right? And so that's the, they're fighting against that. We skipped to eight. I got a couple minutes. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, 
and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them, the scriptures, but because these original tongues are not known to all people of God who have right unto an interest in the scriptures are commanded in the fear of the Lord to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of the every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. All right. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. A little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament as well, but not much, very little. Uh, so Hebrew and Greek, the inspired scripture, there is only one copy of it the original autographed writing on vellum, writing on parchment, writing on papyrus, whatever they wrote it on. That first copy is the inspired word of God, right? Only that first copy. The, the scriptures, there was that one, you know, infallible, if we had all those autographs, we don't have them. If we had all those autographs, that would be the inspired Bible. They were, but God preserved his word, how? By making lots of copies of his word, right? It's an amazing part of Christian history, just the devotion to the word and getting the word out, right? So it was copied, and let's say three people copied that first one. Well, two copies are the same, and the one has an error, left a word or two out. Well, that's wonderful that we have those three copies because then we can figure out by looking at them which, which, is the better trans, which is the better translation or transmission of the text. And then those three went off into ten different streams and the same process is used. And that looking back at those early manuscripts is the process that the New American Standard Bible uses to, to bring us the text, right? Not all f follow that sort of critical theory. Others just take what Erasmus had, whatever had, had, however it had come to him, whatever he had, what Erasmus had, that's what we should use as the gold standard and transmit that. The, the King James Bible comes out of that tradition. And so um, that's all I'll emphasize on that. But God superintended the process right, in the transmission of the word. He superintended that process. This is how he wanted to work. He, there isn't just one, the autographs of all the Bibles in Jerusalem. Imagine if that were the case and that's how God wanted it, one copy. You know, there'd be a lot less believers in the world, right? And those who did believe would all be traveling to Jerusalem to read the scriptures, right? So no, this, this getting the, and this was a reformed, one of the major reform principles is get the word of God into language that people know. People have a right to the hope and the comfort that comes from the scriptures, and so it must be translated. Um, contrary, again, to the Roman Catholic view, which was we've got Jerome's Latin, right, Jerome? Didn't he do the Latin version? We've got that, and we're going to stick to that, and, and we're going to, we're not going to get it into the hands of the people. We're going to chain it to the, the altar so that they can't even read it and so that it's just us giving them the word 
because they can't understand it anyway, we've got to give, the, give it to them. No, it's all wiped out here. God has given his word to his people. And then the last thing, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. This proof text here, Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, then he quotes Scripture, Ephesians 2.20, and are built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and so on and so forth. We, we, uh, we have councils, we have presbytery meetings, we have um, committees, we have uh, ecumenical councils even. And they, they can get together and they can determine things and make uh, proclamations. But, it, but if it's not founded upon Scripture, no thanks, right? If it's not founded upon Scripture, the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture is what is to be the supreme judge of all controversies. Not a pope, not a man, but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. Right? So much of this chapter, obviously, is a response to Roman Catholic abuses and Roman Catholic doctrine. And that's as you should expect it because they had such gross errors here. And the, the Westminster divines were trying to correct that error and boom, they just set out from the start running out of the gate with the Bible. It's going to be the scriptures that are going to guide us. It's going to be authoritative. It's above everything. Why? God breathed these words out of his mouth. And no man's judgment, which is clouded by sin, can ever attain to that level of truth. You've got to be quick. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's time to pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that you have written this, these words to us through inspired men. Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to search your word, to truly know it, to desire it. Father, that we would hang upon every word of Scripture that it would cut us, that it would encourage us, that it would feed us, that it would build us up. And Father, thank you for, again, thank you for this gift. And as we go into worship, I pray that we would be attentive to your word preached. And I pray that the truth of your word would spread and the Holy Spirit would, would move hearts to believe and understand the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Trinity next week.